goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Welcome, Shailendra Malik. I, I hear that you're the VP of DBS Bank, so I'm happy to for you to join us today at Data Transformers podcast. Thank you. Welcome, Shailendra. Um, first question I wanted to ask you is, what is DBS Bank and what exactly do you do there? DBS Bank is Singapore's biggest bank. Um, the full form stands for Development Bank of Singapore. Um, it was formed when Singapore got independence at the, uh, at the same time and tasked to um, go through all the development projects in Singapore, real estate, uh, establishing new uh, industries. Everything was done by uh, DBS at that time. And um, it has been awarded as, uh, as the Asian um, best Asian bank for past few years. And past three years, we have been awarded as the best global bank or best digital global bank um, by Euromoney as well as uh, the banker as well. So yes, uh, DBS is a very well-known name in Asia. And now in past few years, we have been making good progress in, uh, in spreading our brand as well as name um, globally as well with the products that we have and the services that we provide. So what do as you for do me, for DBS uh, Bank, Sharendra? So as for me, um, I'm currently managing um, the tech teams around the group audit platform that we have, um, the internal audit department that, uh, that DBS Bank holds. I manage the uh, technical teams that support the applications and build new applications for internal audit uh, to, to facilitate them to audit the bank and all its um, departments, as well as to evaluate where to go uh, or where uh, we can improve upon and, and expand further. I think one of the topics that uh, you and I, Shalendra, talked about before was the fact that um, a lot of the technology that you support is around you know, models and um, systems like that. So um, a lot of conversations that I have is mainly about actually building the model, like the front end, building the model. But a lot of the conversation that I've been hearing is actually missing the, the second half, right? The actual maintenance of uh, and governance of the models after it's in production. I, I know you have some thoughts on this area. Well, um, certainly the point here is that Every company, every bank, um, every sector in, on the whole, they are all playing around with machine learning and AI these days. And they are trying to explore new use cases across. So um, it's very exciting space for companies and banks and everybody to look for data that they already had and how they can expand on those use cases and come out with new insights. And ML and AI has been a very good kind of a shot in the arm for everyone to explore new spaces and, and look for even new revenue models as well. What I have been noticing in the industry in general is that uh, the glamour part of declaring in the market that yes, we have found a new use case, uh, there are great opportunities, business opportunities that have come with it and um, we have done this or we have done, uh, we have solved a critical problem um, for, uh, through that particular machine learning model. Um, once that glamour part finishes, and the operational and the um, kind of a grind part comes in where you will have to keep optimizing your efficiencies, you'll have to keep optimizing your models in, uh, in a way in that um, that particular use case remains valid, relevant, 
and uh, the accuracy as well as the precision of those models will keep on improving uh, with the data quality as well. So, so that particular part uh, sometimes goes uh, kind of behind the scenes. And uh, it is not very really glamorous to talk about that uh, the efficiency has grown from uh, 81% to 84%. Mm-hmm. Um, so those 3% doesn't look jazzy enough. And that's where I feel that uh, in the operational side, we feel that the models, the first few versions of the models are taken very enthusiastically, but then uh, people move on to the new use cases and the governance of those models sometimes has been taken as uh, as an afterthought uh, when the applications or the new models are being built. So, so that's what I have been working um, in the industry as well. And I've been sharing my views with, with my other uh, colleagues within bank and outside the bank as well, how to best optimize that particular part of it and how to instrument, um, how to do the instrumentation around it. Hey, Shalendra, it's one of the challenges, the, about the discussions about AIML itself is uh, at times, right? Uh, people get lost in the models and, and the technical aspects of it. And then uh, forget what is it meant for? What is the business problem that they're trying to solve it in the first case? So in your case, if you could give an exam, some examples to the listeners and audience about what kind of problems you guys are trying to solve uh, with, with your implementations. Okay, so um, let me establish the landscape first. Yeah. Um, I am managing applications which are, man- uh, which are more towards the internal audit. And the nature of those applications is to look at the data that is coming internally from different departments because we have to audit them and we have to see how, um, how to provide the best assurance possible to the processes that we have in place. Mm-hmm. That is the definition of audit uh, in general. That audit works on the assurance part that whatever we are saying that we are doing, we are actually doing that. So the models that we build or the analytics that we do is to ensure that what other departments are trying to do, they're actually able to achieve it. And if they are claiming that, yes, this is what they are trying to do, they're actually doing it. So, so that particular uh, part, uh, when we start working with, with different departments, we have to work with their data. And audit and compliance usually is one of the most data-rich um, departments in the bank, which usually go under the radar. Mm. Not everybody talks about the compliance department or audit department in general. And the historical view of audit was also being more clerical and working with the, with the figures, with the numbers, and coming and asking for data, and then going back and coming back with the audit points that this is what you're not doing. So, so audit was always seen as a police. But people don't realize that to do that police work or forensic work, we have to work with the data. And that's when the the SOP story starts in many cases. Because um, different departments, they have their own different way of building the applications. Yes, there is an uh, overall um, overarching enterprise architecture and enterprise guideline which is there. But every department is trying to solve a different use case. They are trying to have different um, solutions for different markets, for different products. So, so their, their applications are different in nature. Some of them require low latency, some of them require um, higher um, analytics or higher data-rich um, features. Um, so, so when everything comes to us, we kind of have to manage all sort of applications to see how each and every application or how each and every department is trying to do their business. Mm. This is not humanly possible that you maintaining a very small audit team you should be able to audit the entire bank's everything that is going on. Correct. So our gradual move towards machine learning or AI was kind of, um, it was due to happen. And it was, it was bound to happen one way or the other. 
because over time, the amount of data, the amount of processes, and the amount of uh, sampling that we do, that was exploding. So um, DBS cons uh, consciously moved towards the, uh, in that direction way earlier in 2016, and they started doing POCs with um, how to do with these kind of um, how to solve these kind of problems, and can we can we work out with some sort of um, machine learning tools that can help us to uh, cut through the uh, different noises which are there in the data and look for the actual outliers or on the problem areas. So these, this is what um, the use cases that usually I work with and my team works with. And apart from doing that, we do have our own uh, legacy applications that were built historically, and we have to maintain that particular part as well. So, so we do have a very ambitious future looking uh, roadmap uh, towards the application, which is full of uh, kind of um, uh, dotted with the AI and ML implementations. And with that, we also have the legacy that we have to carry along because a lot of bank systems are still on legacy and then we have to match them in, in their uh, data needs as well and see where they are um, uh, standing as well. So yes, it's, it's kind of, um, we are doing the balancing act in both sides uh, from the AI and ML space, as well as managing the regular applications as well. So Sharmanju, it sounds like there's still, you know, the, the technical debt that uh, DBS Bank is still carrying forth. Um, can you talk about maybe the fact that uh, you are leveraging AI machine learning and audit purposes? Does it get re-leveraged or reused in other areas of the of the bank? For example, maybe a, a data team, enterprise data team, or a data science team? So, okay, so we do have an enterprise data platform, uh, which takes care of um, the data strategies and the policies that we need to follow. And they are the ones who come up with the overall um, handling of data and how to um, how to take care of those limitations and deal with the data and how to classify the data as well. Mm -hmm. So so that particular part has been very well uh, thought out already. And in fact, um, they are the ones who, who very aggressively work towards the the model management and um, uh, how to how to evolve that particular space as well. So so data platform takes care of both legacy as well as future looking data as well because. Um, if you're classifying the data now, um, you can classify everything in a single shot. Um, but there are some systems where classification is slightly trickier than others. So uh, it's it's all about managing those timelines that how to cover the entire bank under that particular gamut. Uh, your point towards the technical debt. Yes, uh, every bank has a technical debt. Um, I, I guess the only banks which are which are free from that particular space are the challenger banks or the neo banks that have come in past four or five years. So, so those banks, because they have started building their entire applications on a new tech stack, um, maybe a cloud-driven uh, strategy from the day one itself, uh, they may not have that problem now, but we'll see how they fare up in next 10 years, because when the first layer of cloud becomes a legacy in itself yeah. and more improvisations come, then we'll have to see how quickly they upgrade to that particular layer and how their maturity comes along. Um, it's easy to not appreciate what we are doing in banks because um, when when people come from different backgrounds, um, for example, somebody coming from telecom like myself, um, telecom is a very tech aggressive industry, and there the whole view towards uh, tech is um, is that if you don't adopt it quick enough, you will lose the market share. So that's why they are very very aggressive in adopting new technologies. But when somebody come to banking sector from a, a very technology-driven sector, 
they feel that banks are the lagards. They don't realize that, uh, that the risk that they carry uh, in the systems as well as uh, in the processes, that risk has a real dollar value attached to it. Any compromise there, any miss there will cost people real money. And, and that's why uh, every step that a bank takes, it has to take with, uh, with a very careful upgrade of their systems. And also there is a very strong regulatory watchdog sitting on top of each and every bank. So yes, they can be as aggressive they want to be, but sometimes um, they are also, they'll have to play within the, within the boundaries given to them by the regulators as well. So, so there, are, there are many factors that comes into play. Uh, if we look only at the technology side, we may feel that the banks are, are lagards over there, but innovation is happening in the banks as well. Shalendra, so, um, so we're getting into the different aspects of finance here. So coming uh, from your background, do you consider yourself a domain expert in audit? Are you a technology expert? Or by this time, you've become a combination of both? Okay, I'm like a mac and cheese. So, <laughs> yeah, so, um, okay, so just to give you a background, um, I am not an auditor. Okay. And I do not hold a specialization space in audit, just that I gained it in past three years by managing applications in audit. And that is the on-the-job learning that I got. So I, now I can consider myself as uh, kind of fully aware of what happens in audit and what they are trying to do and how to solve those problems. But I'm originally not from audit. I started my career in telecom background. And for first seven years of my career, I was there um, in the telecom background and technology with which I'm working on at that time mm-hmm. was AS400, which was far legacy. So, so that is where I started my career from. So I was, I was in technology for AS400, but domain was telecom. I came to Singapore 10 years back when I shifted my domain from telecom to banking. And I came into investment banking as a project manager. So first six months were hell for me. Because people throw jargons at you, people throw product names at you, and then they expect you to know about them. And um, it took me some time to understand how those products work, how those uh, products are supposed to behave. Yes, I had a team of uh, business analysts with me at that time, but um, you need to know the stuff yourself a bit uh, to have that kind of grasp on, on managing those projects where they are going. So yes, uh, so I, I scaled up towards investment banking products. I um, I took care of projects which were running into the back office side, uh, settlements and trade confirmations and settlements. Um, worked on Murex space as well, uh, which is which is a very specialized product on um, on investment banking and treasury markets. So um, after working there, I joined DBS mainly for as a project manager for a project that they were building on risk management, uh, and that too credit risk. Um, and I started from there. It was again a domain shift for me within the banking space itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I never managed the risk. Uh, I never handled a project on risk management before, yes. and that's where I, I I stepped into that. And after building that particular product uh, or project that we delivered, um, I moved into audit because um, because there was a huge overlap of that particular product of credit risk that we that we built um, with audit as well. So, so that's how I, I landed up into audit and then um, created the overall application architectures and, and um, managed the applications of audit on the whole. So, so yes, I don't consider myself as a technologist only. Um, I have, I've gone through a lot of um, uh, domains and their nuances as well. So it becomes kind of easy for me over time 
to identify which is the common pattern that that I can find there, yeah. uh, which which flows from one domain to another, um, because ultimately everybody has to focus on delivery. Yeah. And yeah. if I am there as a delivery manager or as a project manager, the project's delivery is what uh, considered as one of the primary um, KPIs or, or kind of outcomes that people expect from me. So so yes, I specialize on that um, mainly. But on the on the go, I, I do pick up the skills uh, of specific departments I've worked with. So that's actually you know really interesting. I mean, just moving from telecom to investment banking, um, like what motivated you to um, make those type of changes? Do you credit that to your love for learning and ultimately delivery is the ultimate goal? So that's how you've been able to um jump through so much because many times people stick with one domain and that's their entire career so i'm very curious as to how you've been able to evolve and grow so much okay so i consider um some of my managers as my best coaches and mentors um to keep me out of that comfort zone uh, over the over the span of past 18 years, I have fallen into comfort zone as well. But um, whenever that happened, um, they were quick enough to to come over and help me out on that particular space as well. So moving from finance uh, from telecom to finance was not a planned move. To be honest, uh, I was I was just back from Saudi. I, I spent some 18 to 20 months in Saudi Arabia in, in managing one of the projects uh, to migrate. Um, from a legacy system to a new system um, to one of their telecom service providers. And after coming back, I was looking for a bigger opportunity on a far more complex scale that, uh, that I was managing uh, before, um, before that particular space. And I realized that at that moment where the company I was working in, um, in telecom, there were not many projects of that complexity. Um, and then I handled kind of one of the most complex projects available in that company at that time. So um, they wanted me to continue in Saudi, but I, I kind of I had my good fair share of stay over there and I wanted to come back. Uh, and then uh, the next area or the next domain where the, the bigger and more complex projects were available was the BFSI. So it was very clear for me that if I really want to scale up onto the delivery cycle and manage bigger projects, I will have to step into BFSI mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. one way or the other. Um, the discussion just happened in a way that uh, there was an opportunity that came along. It was not originally planned for Singapore. It was planned for uh, another city in India. But while discussion, while interviews and then uh, exploring something more, I landed up with a, uh, with a project management role in Singapore. And at that time, I didn't um, plan for a 10-year stay here. <laughs> I, I came to I came here with a with a plan of a couple of years that okay I'll I'll go there I'll see how it goes I may go for an MBA after that after a couple of years but then um, one thing led to another and the role kept on changing and evolving so so that's that's where I am. That's fantastic. Shara, that's, that's that's a fascinating journey. So you you not only moved domains but you also moved uh, uh, actual really? places. Countries, <laughs> countries, right? So Saudi Arabia to India to Singapore and God knows, you know, who, what's next? You, you never know, yeah. right? So another thing uh, yeah. that uh, struck me is not at the professional journey on the personal side as well. You're enriching your life by doing different things, 
one of the things that I came across is the Agility Enterprise blog that you've started, right? I, I read a few blogs and uh, so I saw the journey that you're going through learning, trying to build it up, trying to build a following. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what was the motivation for the blog? What are you trying to do with the blog? Okay, so I, Agility Exchange is, is one of the initiatives that I'm running from past two years now, um, slightly more than two years. And I have been blogging um, for past 20 years. So, so blogging is nothing new for me. Um, just that the nature of the blogging changed over time. I've, I've started off from personal blogs, wrote some movie reviews as well <laughs> over the time. But then um, as my career uh, took shape and then I realized that where I am standing and what kind of projects I'm managing, um, my, my content and um, um, the things I used to write about, it started moving more towards the professional side of things. And the whole motivation behind that is uh, was to declutter and demystify uh, the complexities that people deliberately introduce uh, in, in their workspaces. Mm -hmm. What I have specifically, uh, so, so yes, one of the major pain points I had was when I came in Singapore and uh, for six months when I was trying to learn investment banking products. So these products are not difficult to understand. These are very easy products. Mm. Um, an interest rate swap is an interest rate swap. If you explain that in a very simplistic way to somebody, he will be able to understand it very easily. But what I realized that um, in the investment banking industry, it becomes a fashion to, to introduce jargons to confuse people. And, and that's, where, that's where I felt that um, we, we may be making things far more complex than they really are. Well, not so, just so jargons. It's also, they, use, they, they like to use acronyms. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so, so we all are guilty of that. And then sometimes we do that deliberately because we wanted to create an IP of our own. Yeah. And then that, that becomes kind of a different uh, product life cycle of itself that uh, this is how you want to brand a product and, and the acronym ultimately takes shape and those things happen, which is good enough for a new product to come in. But if a product is there in the industry from past 15 years, 30 years, 25 years, yeah. you, you have to simplify that. You cannot keep using that kind of uh, jargon and then keep carrying it along. That was my that was my take of it. And then after after a while, uh, when I was changing through my technical domains and I was stepping into fintech as a sector back in 2016, I realized that the same thing is happening in the fintech space as well. It was relatively a new sector coming up. Uh, people were talking about AI, ML, um, blockchain. Um, they were talking about. Um, um, peer-to-peer -peer, um, transactions. IoT, 5G. IoT. Yes, exactly. Yeah, another so, acronym. Another acronym. <laughs> things. So, so, so I felt that, um, yes, it is good to build a new sector with these kind of jazzy terms, but we need to be conscious enough that um, it should create awareness on the go as well. It should not become um, a kind of a research sector, which is not um, producing any products which are um, kind of a user-friendly and it is becoming more and more cryptic. So, so that was the intention of starting Agility Exchange. And another part was, um, so by the name itself, you might have, uh, you might have noticed that Agility is, uh, is coming from a word called Agile. Agile. And in project management space, uh, Agile has been kind of being uh, one of the go-to standards or go-to ways of delivering new products, especially in the Silicon Valley, as well as in the product um, development uh, areas. So companies that are more into product development, they, they follow Agile more, um, more like a religion than, than the normal services sectors because they follow the more 
waterfall and then uh, traditional project management approaches. And what I felt was um, that agile community over time in itself um, has been divided into two different camps. One are purists and one are delivery oriented. And by definition, I feel that I am more of a delivery oriented camp where the whole intention of bringing agile to the fore mm-hmm. was to make sure that we are delivering what we promise on time within budget and with the least possible technical debt because the information is taken directly from the users. We are sitting, the developers are sitting next to the users, taking these specs directly, making smaller, more uh, easily deliverable user stories uh, so that that cycle of six month or one year gap of the requirement taking and delivery is now cut short to a sprint. Yeah. And that was the whole intention of cutting short that particular cycle to remove that technical debt. And when you forget about that main purpose of Agile and you go more into the ceremonial approach of the, of the methodology that no, you'll have to follow this approach by all means, you'll have to follow that approach by all means. Um, and people are just sitting in the rooms and uh, they're, not, they're not bothered whether, <laughs> whether the outcome is the way it should be or not. Then you're following Agile for the sake of Agile. You're not, uh, you're not using that right way or, or the right purpose of that methodology to deliver something beautiful. Uh, and, and that's why that whole discussion with a lot of people in the industry, it gave the um, idea of Agility Exchange as, as the name to it, that uh, don't talk about Agile, talk about Agility, which is far more bigger than just Agile. That's a that's a really great great name. I mean, f- putting the the focus on agility versus then the the process itself. Um, I know for myself, I mean, using agile still fairly new concept, and even in like last two years, in banks in the U.S. are starting you know to really adopt it, embrace it, um, and certainly other new variations of agility uh, agile like Kanban has certainly. Um, come about as as well it's it's a, it's, a, it's a really big change management though right the moving uh, towards a faster sprints deliver, delivering faster um, shorter time to to deliver and show value much much quicker so um, what other trends though are are you seeing as you are working on the agility exchange what other um, you know future things do you do you see coming from from your exchange group? So um, I started this blog purely as an individual blog. And um, after one year of operation, um, quite a few good feedbacks came along. And um, um, a few of my friends also came to me asking that, how can they start blogging? Um, and, and that's when um, a couple of them, they agreed that they want to join Agility Exchange as, as contributors because mm-hmm. uh, they didn't know whether uh, they would be able to continue their own blog for a long time or not. And they, they didn't know uh, how much effort it is required to set up a blog uh, from, from ground up. And, and I gave a thought about it. And then um, it happened so that over time, I, uh, people reached out to me on different content, different uh, domains and different um, dimensions to it. And right now, that single blog is now converted into a blogging platform mm-hmm. where there are six more people blogging on it um, from different walks of life, from different backgrounds, and they're writing on different topics, which I was not covering before. So we do have a person who covers the investment um, banking side, how to choose products, how to do investing, uh, basic approaches um, of investing and how to uh, how to go about it. 
there are a couple of people who, are, who also talk about project management, but not from the space where I cover project management. They have their own unique spaces. Um, there is a person who covers about big data in specific because he comes from the uh, core data background. And um, there are a couple of salespeople who cover the future of work, how sales is changing, especially because of COVID, what changes has come in into the sales cycles and how the interpersonal sales interaction has changed because now you cannot meet people that easily. And then um, there were destruction, uh, there were restrictions on lockdowns and those kind of things as well. So yes, um, the, the overall content space is increasing for agility exchange and, and I'm getting very good uh, feedbacks from our readers as well as um, a couple of um, companies which, which want to list this platform in the annual awards for, um, um, for the content. So yes, uh, we, are, we are getting some very good feedback on that. Excellent. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.